This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. I have said about the book, I hope it's not just a book about a specific small subset of people in the world, uh, namely autistic or neurodivergent people. My hope is that it goes bigger than that and that the book Mm -hmm. is a way of learning to love God and love your neighbor better. We all have limits that we need to embrace. What does it look like to embrace the limits that are particular to us and even our neurochemistry? Well, I talk to author and professor Daniel Bowman about his adult diagnosis of being on the autism spectrum and how that has affected not only his work and his life, but also his creativity. It's such a fascinating conversation. Listen in. Welcome to the Finding Holy Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Hales, author of A Spacious Life. I love big ideas, but ideas have to move beyond an ivory tower to find their application in the midst of our work and our laundry routines. Here on the Finding Holy Podcast, expect conversations about how to live faithfully in a post-Christian world, but without the vitriol, posturing, or shouting across the aisles. Hey friends, it's really wonderful to welcome you to the Finding Holy podcast and as well to welcome my guest, Dan Bowman. He's the author of the book, On the Spectrum, Autism, Faith, and the Gifts of Neurodiversity. So thanks for being here, Dan. Thank you so much for having me. You are welcome. So you talk about being on the spectrum and particularly coming to your diagnosis in your 30s. Uh, could you just tell us a little bit of what that was like and then how that diagnosis helped you kind of reframe maybe even your childhood and some of your earlier years, which I realize is like, hi, can you, you know, summarize your life in two seconds, but <laughs> appreciate it. Yeah. Um, I came to desire a diagnosis um, really in a time of crisis in my personal life, trying to figure out um, basically uh, what made me so bad at life when other people seem to be okay at it? <laughs> uh, people didn't seem to struggle as much to do very simple things every day uh, and things that upset me so terribly and so deeply, um, including, for example, uh, a surprise, something that's unexpected, a change in routine, you know, uh, a, a lack of structure where I once had structure. Mm-hmm. For example, like right now, I'm in, I'm in finals week, of uh, my semester at the university. I'm accustomed to going in and having my morning classes and then I'll have lunch on campus and then I'll, I'll do some meetings in the afternoon. And then for all of that to just suddenly go away and my schedule is kind of wide open except the days that I have exams, mm-hmm. uh, it, re- it really throws me off. And so uh, I was in a moment of crisis where I just... I had to get some answers. I'm like, why am I so different? What is it? And my whole life I had been told, you know, you have that artist's um, sensitivity. You're, you're very, very deeply sensitive. And 
you know, have that artistic temperament and everything. And I thought it's got to be more than that. And so I've, I was talking to people about depression and anxiety and lots of other things. It turned out that most of that uh, was, was just symptomatic of a larger issue. And once I began to uh, do the research into autism, it checked all the boxes mm-hmm. when I understood my social anxieties, uh, my sensory processing disorder, how I struggle, you know, in places that have uh, bright lights, mm-hmm. fluorescent lighting, um, uh, loud noises, too many people, you know, things like that. Yeah. And so I really needed to arrive at some answers. And so I, I started on this journey, which which takes up the early part of the book. The, the very earliest essay is about the journey toward, well, first of all, the crisis, and then the journey toward um some sort of answer or healing or wholeness. And Mm -hmm. I went to counseling and did lots of other things and finally got a a formal diagnosis. And it did reframe everything for me. Um, It changed my perspective on my adult life because in large part, the things that I thought were deficits and that I was bad at, I was able to understand that they weren't necessarily my fault, that my brain Mm -hmm. was wired quite differently from other people's. And, and so, um, it, it lifted the shame that I carried around, you know, mm-hmm. you're very, especially in Christian communities, you're very shamed. You carry a lot of shame. If you, for example, uh, don't feel like you're successful with relationships, you know, right. if you don't go to all of the ch- church events or the, you know, gatherings at the holidays and all this, and you can't handle those things and you have to leave early, <laughs> Uh, you feel like a failure, you know, right. yeah. uh, because we're supposed to be um, supporting each other and bearing each other's burdens and living in community with one another and, and lifting each other up and all that. Mm-hmm. You find yourself on the margins. Uh, it just doesn't feel good. Mm-hmm. And so it re- it reframed the way that I thought about myself as an adult. And then I went back through kind of my childhood. And I do this a little bit in the book and talk about moments that were difficult in my childhood. And it repositioned some of that, too in ways that are much healthier, because I think when we seek the, the, the fullness of the truth in our lives, uh, we can be a lot healthier. Yeah. For example, I, uh, often blamed my mom, probably unfairly nowadays, uh, for a lot of things in my childhood. And I have a very good, healthy relationship with my mom nowadays, which is a huge part of my life. And I'm Mm -hmm. so thankful for it. And I had to say, hey, I'm sorry, I blamed you for years for things that weren't your fault. Uh, for example, a, a certain babysitter that you hired at one point. I I was bound to be who I was no matter where you sent me. I was going to struggle <laughs> because I was autistic. We just didn't right. know it. Yeah. So I was going to struggle. So the picture um, just became fuller and, mm-hmm. and I understood it better. And that's important for everybody in my life. Yeah. No, I think that's re- that's helpful. And you know, whether we are neurotypical or neurodivergent, I think there's, we have a lot of reframing to do. I think, yes. of, you know, some of those earlier years and you help us see that, I think no matter where we, where we are on that spectrum. I, I do want to ask you just a quick question before we get into some other things about limits and art, but I would love to hear, you, I loved the bit in your book where you were talking about what would it look like for the church to really be the church, you know, for mm. you to be rocking, you know, the baby in the nursery, because that is something that is soothing and comforting to both of you rather than, you know, the 
the lunchbox, which was, yeah. you know, kind of a, a, a something that could just really change, you know, socially and you don't know what to expect. Um, paint for us a beautiful picture of what the church could look like if it actually was inclusive of neurodivergence. Um, if we actually, and regardless of even that, you know, if, if we, which you get out in the book, you know, if we actually knew one another well enough to yeah. be operating in our areas of giftedness, what might that look like? Imagine with us. Yeah. Um, thanks for, for asking that. I, I have done that. I've, I've sat and kind of just imagined it mm-hmm. because I think we, we have to, um, be able to see it in our mind's eye and try to work toward it a little bit. It's it's tough because the church, among other things, is uh, a place of uh, social expectations and and it mirrors the the outside world in, in that sense in so mm-hmm. many different ways. And so the expectations are always there that everyone's going to function in a similar way as they might out in the in the culture. For me, I, I would like to see it be at least in part a safe haven for um, for everybody, uh, mm-hmm. for neurodivergent people, for people who um, seek s- stimulation and need a lot of uh, relational time with others and everybody in between. And so that section that you alluded to about like working in the nursery, <laughs> well, for example, the expectation would be me as um, somebody approaching middle age who's male and teaches at a university, a local Christian college, that I could probably be in charge of one of the bigger ministries on a Sunday afternoon, like the dinner that we host at our church for uh, people experiencing food and housing insecurities. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's actually not the right fit for my brain wiring. It's a very, mm-hmm. very tricky, complicated situation. You have people with mental illness, and I, I would feel so underprepared to do that. And I think it would take so much out of me that a Sabbath would turn into probably Mm. the toughest work day of my week. (laughs) Yeah. So instead, you know, I've thought, well, when my kids were little, I I liked to go down to the nursery, for example, uh, when possible, and uh, just watch them play and watch other people's kids who were there. I love babies. I miss my kids being little. They're older now. And so, you know, I was the the kind of person who would love to be in the rocking chair in the corner of the nursery. And that one baby that wouldn't stop crying when the parents went upstairs to the service, I want, I want that baby because I know yeah. I can calm that baby down <laughs> and, and I love it and it soothes me uh, mm-hmm. and it's soothing uh, for the child. And so I'd like to have that be a little more socially acceptable, maybe that I'm down there doing that while other people are doing other ministries and we're all sort of working together. But in ways that make sense for us and allow us to flourish. Mm-hmm. What do we need to do to get there? I have said about the book uh, to people a number of times that it's, I hope it's not just a book about a specific small subset of people in the world, uh, namely autistic or neurodivergent people, uh, maybe one in 50, you know, or whatever the current number is. My hope is that it goes bigger than that and that the book mm-hmm. is, a way of learning to love God and love your neighbor better. And so if I I think if we pay attention, if we give our attention to one another's stories um, uh, through reading and and maybe perhaps also through narrative on uh, TV shows and, and films and things like that, but you know, we could just love each other better if we took time to understand each other better. So Mm -hmm. autism is one thing. 
Um, but if I lived in a community, for example, where I had, um, let's say, a, a Sudanese refugee family move into my neighborhood, I would want to um, learn about who they are and what kind of food they eat, mm -hmm. what kind of uh, practices they uh, have in their everyday lives and things like that. Why show up with something that they wouldn't mm -hmm. eat and knock on their door you know, and try to force my, my own thoughts and right. uh, ways of being in the world upon them if I can, in fact, love them where they are and be more useful to them? Um, so I would like people to do that for autistics or for, for anybody, mm -hmm. uh, but, but that takes time. That takes uh, yeah. a lot of effort to, to, to get to know each other. Yeah. And you know, we, there's, that feels like a, a tall order, unfortunately, you yeah. know, these yeah. days with our busyness and achievement oriented kind of American life. So, right. Right. Um, but I think it's beautiful to think about, uh, to think about the church actually, again, being a, a counterculture, um, where we can learn. I love to, obviously you're an English professor. I have a PhD in English, so I loved all of your allusions throughout, but, um, you know, as you're thinking about art, particularly, you, you write a lot about various novels that have meant something to you and finding a home in books. Um, how did the kind of limits of your life help you to kind of find a home, um, in books? And then also, you know, was there a freedom there? So, you know, part of the reason I asked that question is um, my last season of the podcast, we looked at the idea of how limits are good. And we looked at it particularly in relation to my book that came out um, this last fall about how limits can actually be good and they can be invitations. And so as we yeah. think about what does that look like in the realm of art, particularly, I'd love to hear a bit about, yeah, the limits of your life and how maybe there was actually a spaciousness, a freedom that opened up through creative work. Yeah, um, it's a great topic and a great question. Uh, I, limits as invitations, I think that could really be um, definitive for, for me. <laughs> mm -hmm. out of place. Um, yeah. I had, uh, you know, fairly striking limitations, I think, in the way that I understood or, or, or uh, didn't understand other people around me. Um, the lack of uh, an intuitive sense of what people are thinking, what their motives are, why they're behaving the way they're behaving, what they mean in the subtext when they say something out loud. These are things that, that autistic people uh, often struggle with. And mm -hmm. I struggle with. Um, well, let me go back even further. I was going to yeah. talk about books that I, that I encountered as, as an English major in college because that was really a turning point for me. But I'll go back to, to my childhood just really quickly. The other thing is with all of those social limitations, I'd never felt at home anywhere because everybody mm -hmm. else got along with each other in a way that I wasn't understanding. What's this secret that you all know that I don't know? Yeah. I never um, didn't get along when I was reading. I never mm -hmm. felt unwelcome in the spaces of books. And so my, my mother took me to the library. Um, and I don't, honestly, I don't know why. Uh, it was just a good idea. We weren't a family of readers. My parents mm -hmm. were blue collar people, didn't go to college. Um, and they, they didn't read at all. But my mother took me to the library and I took home large stacks of books and just ripped through them. And I yeah. felt welcome in those spaces for the first time. Mm -hmm. I thought there might be a place for me on planet Earth 
<laughs> in, inside of these books anyway. <laughs> and then um, I hear you. I... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To expand that thought and then to move on to, to college when I when I got to college and, and I wanted to become an adult and understand the world around me and the people that I was so fascinated by that I was meeting um, and moving to a small city uh, of Rochester, New York, and and uh, trying to get along in a place where there was art and culture and things that I never had growing up. Mm-hmm. I, I started reading, for example, the great um, 19th century British novels. And I thought, oh, um, you know, I would read, I would, I just had, it was a revelatory experience for me. I would read Jane Eyre or Wuthering Heights or um, to go a little bit earlier, you know, Pride and Prejudice. Mm-hmm. I think, is that how people's minds work? So we're getting the authors rendering that interior, uh, the interiority, the secret thoughts and the hearts and minds of the characters. Mm -hmm. And I was so fascinated by it because I didn't know how other people functioned internally. And when I read those stories, I thought, wow, I'm learning about how other people work and what makes them tick. And I want to keep learning more about that because I don't know that stuff. Yeah. That's fantastic. Um, I mean, you know, it sounds like from what you're saying too, is that you had that books allowed you an education, right? Towards learning, um, different ways of being in the world. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know how some people talk about, um, especially with younger, uh, kids, you talk about how some books are windows and some are mirrors. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I experienced that when, when I was in college, um, I had a professor who taught us a lot of Raymond Carver short stories. This was Mm -hmm. in the late nineties and he was a big Carver fan. (laughs) And I I saw a a mirror held up to my Mm. own community in upstate New York of blue collar Mm. working class people who are struggling and trying to figure things out. Yeah. I, you know, then I read these other books from around the world and they, they functioned as windows into worlds I'd never thought of or heard of. I didn't travel anywhere when I was a kid. So I had a very limited exposure and I only gained it through, through literature. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love that. I think that's so good. Are you worn out by hurry and hustle and yet you don't know what it looks like to find a better way? Well, Jasmine Holmes called my book, A Spacious Life, Balm for a Weary Soul. Tish Harrison Warren called it a needed tonic, and Jen Pollock-Michelle talks about it as rescuing us from the siren call of self-help. Join these women as they have experienced both their own limits and seen how my book, A Spacious Life, helps all of us to embrace the goodness of our God-given limits. Find out more at aspacious.life. That's aspacious.life. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, 
Bow offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. You also talk about the limits of place and, and the invitations of place as well, and which I'm a big fan of. My my first book was all about suburbia, so and I I was like, yes, and you have a lot of um, Scott Russell Sanders, Russell yes. Scott, <laughs> Scott Russell Sanders. Yeah, I'm like he has so many names that all sound from you know the right. same. <laughs> like get them all mixed up. Um, but yeah, I appreciated the ways in which those sorts of books, books about the Midwest particularly, helped shape you as well to learn the language of a place. Yeah. Um, how have you found? And you just had such a great question in in your book about. Um, so I'm hoping all my listeners realize that this isn't just a book. It's not like a clinical book about being on the spectrum or something. It is very much a, a window into different ways of seeing. But you talk about a place as a comfort object. Could you unpack that a little bit and how, you, how you've moved and what that looks like? Because I think that's for sure. I know lots of folks who are not carefully thoughtful about the ways that place shapes us. And I think you have something really beautiful to say to regarding that. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I, I really, it, it was a necessity for me because I, I needed some, um, handholds, some things to grip onto at various points to, to remain anchored and to, um, to have any chance of flourishing at all, <laughs> yeah. Uh, whether it's in a job or, or um, you know, relationally or other ways, and so I always uh, thought of upstate New York uh, in general, central New York, where I grew up in the Mohawk River Valley, and then out in western New York in in Rochester, where I went to college and then lived there for most of my twenties um, in the city. I thought of those places, uh, it was hard. the thought of leaving was very, very difficult because to start anew and to have nobody, uh, to meet brand new people, you know, when you're in your late 20s, early 30s, um, to be raising kids without the support of family around, all these sorts of things was extreme for me. I don't know how else to put it. It's just a mm -hmm. dramatic idea for me uh, to the point where... I had thoughts of moving back, you know, many yeah. times because it was so, so difficult to try to do that. And I realized that's that autistic tendency toward a comfort object. And as soon as I use that phrase with autistic people, you know, people will tell me stories of some blanket or some flannel shirt or something that they've had that's just absolutely disgusting because they've been carrying around for 25 years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, their dog has ruined it and, mm -hmm. and it's, you know, been left places and stuff like that. So, uh, so I think in an ever-changing world and a place where we have a tough time feeling um, safe, mm -hmm. uh, our comfort objects help anchor us and root us and and let us know that we're, we're indeed safe. So whether that's a certain drink that we like to have, a certain object that we carry around. Um, we have comfort foods. You know, they, autistic people call them same foods. Mm. <laughs> the things that we know for sure are going to taste the exact same no matter mm. what, like a, mm. like a box of Kraft macaroni and right? cheese. Right, yeah. <laughs> you know? There's no mystery. There's no, mm. um, if I'm having a hard day and lots of things out in the world, I can't control those things that are happening right. to me out in the world. But when I get home, 
I can eat something that I know exactly the taste, the texture, the aroma, everything, yeah. and know exactly what it's going to be. And that makes me feel safe. Yeah. So what happens when a place becomes a safety object or a comfort object? That's a, that's a tougher call. What it led to for me uh, is when I got out here to rural Indiana, I had to find some guides. And for me, I knew they were going to be in books because I needed authors. I needed writers who have articulated things about this land. When I mm -hmm. came out, I just saw the flatness of Indiana. Right, right. There are yeah. no hills anywhere. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't understand what this even is. Right. Where, I have why no are way to no orient hills? myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And there's just, you know, there's these uh, cornfields everywhere or soybean fields on, you know, on the other side of the road. I need to make sense of them. And I had a suspicion as a poet, you know, that they weren't boring. They were actually pretty cool, uh, but I needed some guidance. And so mm -hmm. I read Pat Sanders and I read lots of other Midwestern writers who helped me make sense of uh, the inherent beauty that's here of Midwestern writers in the past who left the Midwest and some who didn't and, and lots of other things so that I could feel safe in my daily living and, mm -hmm. and try to thrive. Mm -hmm. And you know, what you're speaking about too is, is, you know, I think it's probably heightened, right, for for folks on the spectrum. Um, but yeah, I think about my children. What they what do they do to decompress when they come home from school? Or you know what, <laughs> you know what makes me? We've just recently moved from California to Colorado, and you know what are the the sorts of things that I reach out to for for comfort and security? Yeah. Um. Yeah. So yeah, you're really bringing up you just um, something that is really all of us experience, I think, but probably you experience it. In a, in a more heightened way. So many of these, so many of these things. Yeah. Tell us what, um, for those who are neurotypical, what's maybe one or two small steps that they could take towards understanding or asking good questions or being a good neighbor to folks who are on the spectrum? Well, you mentioned that the, that this book is, um, to me, it's like a, a literary work kind of it's mm -hmm. a memoir in essays and that makes it different from and of course it's a first person narrative you know and that makes it different from a clinical book so i've been talking lately um i did a, a event uh with some people at princeton university at the institute for youth ministry at princeton mm -hmm. theological seminary last mm -hmm. week and in preparation for that, we had to read a book uh, called Crippled Grace, and the subtitle is Disability, Virtue, Ethics, and the Good Life. Hmm. Um, really great stuff. I uh, really appreciated that that book and the perspective of that writer, uh, Shane Clifton. But I, I also had the thought, you know, it was very obvious to me that I was the only person who's, who's there who is not a scholar. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a scholar of anything, uh, much less a scholar of disability. Um, I'm not a literary scholar. I'm just a creative writer. <laughs> but you do it. And, so. uh, <laughs> Better than I, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I, you know, I was talking with these folks and they're actually developing a curriculum mm. for young people and for youth pastors who are going to be working with young people um, who are neurodivergent. Mm. And so they're doing these focus groups and these conversations and trying to call, you know, wisdom from these things. But again, everybody there was a scholar of disability using mm -hmm. scholarly language and or they were theologians, proper yeah. theologians, degreed, you know, <laughs> theologians using yeah. the, theological discourse. And so I thought that's 
that's good and right, obviously, at a place uh, that's a, a seminary. At the same time, most people um, aren't those things. That's going to yeah. exclude a huge percentage of the population. And so I just thought, well, a book like mine or, or, or let's say a, a young adult novel written by somebody who's autistic or a book of poetry written by somebody on the spectrum um, might just land a little bit differently and it might be more accessible to, mm. to everyday people. So my first thing that I would always say to anyone is not read, to read my book in particular necessarily, but find a book, um, maybe the British author, Catherine May, who's had a mm -hmm. lot of success with her book Wintering this past year. Yes, uh, She's very good, uh, become a good friend of mine. Her first book, the or uh, her first memoir, I should say, mm -hmm. The Electricity of Every Living Thing, is about a, a, a woman in the United Kingdom on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. So when you read these first-person narratives, you get the lived experience from our point of view about how it feels to be in our bodies uh, mm -hmm. and, and, and live through these things. And I think that can be more poignant sometimes for certain kinds of audiences than, than the scholarly discourse. So I would, mm -hmm. I would be in there and say, just try to read up, you know, from people who are writing these things. It might be a tweet or a blog post, you know. Mm -hmm. And then what would you recommend maybe for, for parents who have received a, a, a diagnosis for their children? Um, one of my dear friends did. And yes, she has a teenager who is on the spectrum. And that experience of what one expected, you know, parenthood to look like, um, and then reckoning with the reality, um, has been hugely a growth area for her and for her family. But, um, maybe folks who are earlier on in that journey, what would you, what would you say to them? A, a few things. Um, for one thing that there, there's this kind of, um, contradiction I think right now that's happening where, if you're a parent of an autistic um, young person and you enter into autistic spaces online, you may find that they are um, inhospitable to you <laughs> at times uh, yeah. because autistic people had been spoken over and spoken for mm -hmm. for so many years in mm -hmm. so many ways uh, by people with money and power. Uh, yeah. And just in this generation, you know, just in the last, 20 years even, um, autistic people are speaking up and using their own voices yeah. and saying, this is my lived experience. So don't speak over me and write a clinical book about what it means to be autistic when it doesn't reflect who I am actually. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so um, you can see that why that effort has taken place to, to create those safe spaces for autistic people. Um, what we often say would be to, uh, to listen to autistic adults when you're mm -hmm an autistic kid um, and take our advice on the on how things are and maybe what what is best for us um, and yet when some sometimes when well well-meaning parents enter into those spaces they find it uh, tough to get along because there's such a aggressive push from autistics to to be self-determined and things like that um, that they may find they they may find those spaces a little frightening to be honest <laughs> Mm -hmm. questions and and to grieve actually yeah uh, from my point of view and a lot of autistic people that i know would be unhappy with me saying this from my point of view it makes perfect sense that if you had the expectation that your kid's life might go one way and it goes a slightly different way um, that there's going to be a distance there that you need to acknowledge and uh reckon with somehow and reconcile yeah. yourself too i don't it doesn't necessarily mean it's bad it just means it's different right and differences are tough. They're tough for me. 
um, <laughs> every single day. So who am I to judge a parent who's grieving right. uh, about this? Mm-hmm. Um, but once once that's you know in process, then I, I I do think you could listen to autistic adults and I'll, 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 so many mm-hmm. parents that I've spoken with have had a lot of success with their kids by reading uh, books by autistic people and recognizing, oh, that's what my kid feels like Yeah, yeah. Uh, when they're at school and there's a neighborhood dog barking that won't stop barking. Most of the other kids don't even notice it, but it it makes my kid crazy. And he has to put his Mm -hmm. hands over his ears and, and people get nervous and think there's something wrong. And, you know, and, and actually, um, it's it's there's a solution to it you know mm-hmm. <laughs> it doesn't have to be that big of a deal and it right. can be okay mm-hmm. um, so to kind of normalize things based on what you learn from autistic adults even if you think that your kid uh, perhaps experiences things in more extreme ways than I do or has higher support needs I mm-hmm. think you can still learn from us mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's a great posture um yeah what is the gift of being on the spectrum been for you as far as your faith journey? I think in part, it's, it's a very uh, incarnational kind of thing. I don't have the luxury of sort of sleepwalking through life. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> what's the Thoreau quote that people throw around? Like the mass of men live lives of quiet desperation. Right. Yeah. I, I don't really get to do that <laughs> because I would just get trampled. I would just get hit <laughs> by a bus if I tried to sleepwalk for two seconds. Yeah. I have to be constantly vigilant and aware of my surroundings. But that does become a gift, even though it's a limitation and I can burn out quickly and, and have really I can struggle with that a lot it does become a gift because um, it's the gift of a quality of observation. Mm. And what's better for a poet or a creative writer than a a quality of observation. I need to be watching everything around me and and noticing the rhythms and being able to articulate them using fresh language. And so that is something that I've tried to turn into a gift. Mm -hmm. Um, And when it comes to like fiction writing, for example, which I have uh, a young adult novel that I've written and working on a couple more edits and we're going to get that out into the world hopefully soon (laughs) Uh, (laughs) you know when it comes to fiction writing it's it's more about relationships and and things like that for me anyway that's what i like to write about and so to be vigilant about the things that people say and how they say them and why that comes with the territory of being autistic uh, but it carries over very nicely i think into creative writing Mm mm-hmm and what does that look like um, in terms of, do you feel like your neurodivergence has led you to a different experience of God than someone who might be neurotypical? Uh, yeah. And then when it, yeah, I'm sorry. I'll follow that up with the faith part. Yeah. yeah. I was going into the writing stuff. It's okay. It, that's it's, good too. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of all, all one yeah, of the, yeah. for me. Uh, but yeah, f- when it comes to that, you know, like I, I use the word incarnational, it's, mm-hmm. it's very embodied. It's, mm-hmm. I have to be constantly aware um and uh, that does change the way that I think about other people. Um, it's made it's made me more uh, forgiving than I was before, and less judgmental than I was before. Um, I had pretty strict, and this is typical of of, of a um, autistic person. I had pretty strict ways of of seeing the world and viewing things uh, mm-hmm. that were sort of all or nothing. Um, according to my experience, because that's how I felt them and how yeah. I processed them. Uh, but I've had to um, 
become a much better citizen of the world and try to understand people better. And to me, that makes me a better Christian because if, if the, if the, if the end of the day, it's love God and love your neighbor. And how can I do that? Um, unless I'm learning more and growing through reading and writing and mm-hmm. processing and exploring and examining, I have to do those things constantly just to survive in my life. And so then I can transfer those things over to, yeah, to that realm of faith where I feel like um, I I keep growing in my understanding of people and that's going to make me, uh, that's going to empower me to love them better, I guess. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. So many great things to think about. Um, as we conclude, I would love to hear your laundry routine. And you know, <laughs> the reason why I asked this question is because it kind of comes from Kathleen Norris, who she came back to faith because she saw the priest doing the dishes. And so, you know, as we talk about all of these large things, we're trying to help connect the dots between all the big ideas and our everyday routines, which I'm sure you have a lot. Do you have a laundry routine then too? Um, <laughs> so here's the thing I'll go, I'll, I will, uh, I will switch this up back to dishes, I think, because okay, honestly, I don't do laundry, um, almost ever. And here's the, here's a good reason why it, because every time I've tried to do it, so I have a teenage daughter, yeah. um, and I have, and we have a 12 year old son. <laughs> every time I try to do laundry, I get in trouble because I will take the clothes out of the washer and put them in the dryer. And then everyone in the house will say to me, with the exception of my son, who doesn't really much care, <laughs> everybody else will say, oh, you're not, you can't dry that. You have to put that on a hanger. You can't right. put that in the, so <laughs> I got into trouble so many different times because I don't know which articles need to be uh, hung up and which ones need to go in the dryer and which ones can't go in the dryer and so forth. Right. So, so you're banned from short, that household I now. <laughs> I don't really do laundry. However, uh, we've lived here for, um, over 11 years we we've never we don't have a dishwasher in this house we never have um and so um almost always i'll I'll do dishes yeah and i love that because it's a routine for me Mm -hmm. it's comforting it's safe and it's it's um i'm one of those people who if i need to do a writing assignment or get something accomplished if i can do the dishes first and get the house clean then mentally i'm thinking okay we're in, we're in the mode of accomplishing things and yes. getting that we can see with our eyes are done. So mm-hmm. dishes are actually very satisfying for me. Mm-hmm. So most nights I'll kick everybody out of the kitchen after we're done and leftovers are put away. I put on noise canceling headphones, uh, which are an autistic's best friend. Mm-hmm. And I Bluetooth my phone and I have audiobooks, and I'll put on a novel and nice. I will just, just systematically do every um, pot and pan and every single dish. And I even often I'll dry them and put them all away uh, just because I still want to listen to another chapter of the book. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> so I, I do that most nights of the week and it's a very, very grounding experience mm. for me. It's a, a good thing for me. And it never feels like a waste of time when you're listening to an audio book because you're, you're essentially doubling your reading from what you can read in print and to listening yes. to it, you know? Yes. So yeah, that's a cherished routine. That's fantastic. I love it. Well, thank you, Dan, for being here. Thanks for sharing your life and the wisdom that you've gained for from being you and your good work in the world. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for reading the book and for taking notice and, and caring about this issue and people like me. I appreciate it so much. You're welcome. Mm-hmm. 
Thanks friends for being here. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dan. He is a delightful guest and his book on the spectrum would make such helpful reading for you. You could find a link to the book in the show notes. And as we think about this idea of creativity and our lives and our limits, I want to encourage you towards one small step. And this week, I would encourage you to think about the limits that are yours to embrace. It might not be a diagnosis, it might not be something neurochemically going on, but you might have limits of your body, your time, your season of life, limits with your family or with your neighborhood. And I would encourage you to write down what are maybe five limits of your life. And then just pick one and spend some time in prayer actually diving into that limit. What is the gift of that limit? And how might you actually be more life-giving to your people and your place because of that limit? Often we tend to think of our limits as constricting. And so I hope that as you dive deeper into that one particular limit that is yours to embrace, that you will begin to find that there is something beautiful and an invitation there as well. Thanks for being here. I would love it if you have not subscribed to the Finding Holy podcast. If you would take just a second and subscribe, it helps these conversations happen. I appreciate you being here and I hope that you remember big things matter, but so does the laundry. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.